following message is presented by Erie Evangelical Free Church in Erie, Illinois. We are a church that exists for the good of our community and are proud to share the gospel of Jesus Christ as we seek to know him and make him known. This used to happen a lot more than I think it probably does now because I I think labels are better than they used to be. But parents, for you especially, you may remember giving a present and, and maybe you've had this experience of receiving something like this. But you give that present that your child has been asking for, for months, which feels like years, of this is the thing that I want. And you're like, we're going to be really nice. We're going to be especially nice this Christmas and give them what they want. So you give them that present. And they tear it open. They say, this is awesome. This is exactly what I wanted. And they're super excited. And they tear it open and they open the box and they, they pull that toy out. But it's at that point that you realize that the box says battery's not included. And what it wants is like 16 C batteries or something ridiculous. And you're like, C batteries? I don't even own C batteries. So you go and you're, you're looking through the junk drawer and you find like two C batteries, which doesn't help you. And the two that you find there have an expiration date of like 1978 and they're all rusted over. You're like, what are we doing with these? And so, okay, what are we going to do? Well, nothing now. Sorry, kiddo. We're going we're gonna to set the toy aside. You got all this other stuff to play with, right? But, but let's set this one aside. And what happens is that toy gets set aside. And at least for the moment, it's forgotten. It just sits there and does nothing while your child plays with all these other toys. Well, why does it sit there and do nothing? Because it has no power. For far too many people, the Christian faith becomes like that toy. There's this understanding of of the love of Jesus, the forgiveness, the hope, the joy, the satisfaction that we can have in the Christian faith. And it's great, and we get the toy, and we see it, and we're like, yes, everything I wanted is right there. But we don't really want to submit and surrender to Jesus. Like, can I get all this good stuff and keep my life exactly the same way that it was before? And what happens is they take that Christian faith and they just remove the batteries. And soon there's a realization that this just doesn't do much. Why doesn't it do much? Because mere religion is useless. Even the Christian religion is useless unless it's connected to the power of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can come to all the church services we want. We can memorize all the Bible verses we want. We can be the greatest people. But apart from Jesus Christ, there is no power to the Christian faith. But in Jesus, there is the power that moves us from empty activities to a meaningful, transformational, deep relationship of true faith. So the question we ask ourselves as we look at this passage today is this, what drives our religion? What drives our religious activity? Because in Colossians 1, verse 15 through 20, we get this beautiful hymn that offers a, a prayer and a praise of the nature of who Jesus Christ is. And in it today, we're going to see three key truths about who Jesus is and how that leads us to three key implications for our response to Jesus Christ. 
and the power that we have in the Christian faith. And the first truth we're going to see here is in verses 15 through 17, where we see that Jesus is creator and sustainer. Jesus is creator and sustainer. Verses 15 through 17, it says, he is the image of the invisible God. Hold on, stop there for a second. Who is he? He is Jesus. We go back to verse 13 that we talked about yesterday. It says, God transfers us from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves. That's Jesus. And now Paul's gonna talk about Jesus. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him, all things hold together. Jesus is creator and sustainer. Now, there's a ton in these three verses, okay? And in December, as part of our Christmas series, we talked about these three verses and we talked about it in a little more depth. So if you wanna dive a little deeper into these verses, you can go back this week and and jump on YouTube or Facebook or our podcast and listen to to that message. But for today, I just want us to, to pick out a couple of key points in these three verses about who Jesus is. First, it says Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the physical manifestation of God in human form. Okay? Anybody ever seen God? No. You can't. He doesn't have that physical form. But Jesus came into the world as the manifestation of God in human form. We're going to talk a little bit more about that later. Then it says he is firstborn over all creation. Well, what's firstborn mean? Right? Because... There's some really terrible understandings of scripture that take that to say, well, Jesus is a human being and just a person because he's firstborn. That's not what that means. That Jesus is firstborn over all creations is not about a physical birth. It's about his power and his authority over all things. Okay? We we have to understand the, the, the Jewish context. Right? In the Jewish context, firstborn is massive. It is a huge deal in the Jewish faith. The firstborn son was the one who was given authority of the house when the father leaves. In fact, if you go back through, uh, just in Genesis, you find tons of stories where that issue of the firstborn son is the root of all kinds of problems. If you remember the story of Jacob and Esau, Esau Esau was born first. He was the son who should receive everything from the father, but Jacob tricks Esau into selling him the birthright, which is the right to the blessing of the father. And then when it comes time for the sons to be blessed, Jacob tricks his father and steals the birthright. So even though he's not the firstborn son, he now lays claim to the kingdom of the father. And so there is tension, there's problems. Remember the story of Joseph, right? Joseph and the technicolor dream coat. Joseph and his brothers. Remember what the problem was at the start of the story of Joseph and his brothers? It was this. Joseph had a dream that all his brothers bowed down and worshiped him. Why was that a problem? Because Joseph not only was not the oldest son, he was the youngest. And so every one of his brothers has power, has authority, can rule over him. But he says, no, 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 no. I know that's the way it's supposed to go, but that ain't the way it's going to happen, brothers you're going to bow down and worship me. 
you're going to bow down before me. Right? It's that idea of firstborn. That firstborn talks about a position of power. And Jesus is the firstborn over all of creation. His power and authority is the creator and sustainer over all of creation. Why does he have that power? Because verse 16 tells us that he created all things. And I know some of you are going, well, hold on a second. I've read Genesis 1. It was God who created all things, not Jesus, right? Jesus doesn't come along till the New Testament. So how does, how does Jesus create? How is he the one who creates everything? Well, we have to remember that Jesus is one with the Father. Whatever the Father does, Jesus does. In fact, you read Genesis 1, verse 3. How does, how does God bring creation into existence? He speaks a word. He says, let there be light, and there is light. Right? He says, he speaks the word. Then John 1, 1 tells us that the word became flesh. Right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word that God spoke is Jesus. Jesus creates all things. And so he is firstborn over all creation. And, and Paul gives us here the, a definition of what all creation is. Because he says that Jesus is firstborn over all things. He created all things. What did he create? Heaven, earth, things that are visible, things that are invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. Right? And, and we could tear every one of those words apart and say, well, how does that apply to the world? But here's the big picture. Here's what Paul's intending. He's not intending for us to look at each one of those and try to break it down. He's saying Jesus' rule is all-encompassing. Everything, heaven, earth, invisible, visible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, it is all-encompassing. Jesus has created everything, so he's firstborn with power over everything because it is his creation. And he is the one who, as verse 17 says, holds all existence together. Jesus holds all existence together. See, without Jesus, there is no life. I go back to Genesis 1. Without Jesus, without God, there is no life. And without Jesus... What life there is, is meaningless. Without Jesus, there is no life. And without Jesus, what life there is, is meaningless. This is why we, we see people in the media and we're just confused. This is why billionaires will fight and struggle and strain for a few more dollars. This is why sports heroes will alienate half their fan base by giving their political opinions. Do you, do you know why that is? Because even though they have everything that you and I might think that we would want, right? They've got wealth. They don't have to worry about money. They wouldn't ever have to work another day in their life if they didn't want to. They've got notoriety. They're liked. Right? They've got everything that, that most people would say, okay, if I, what do I want to get out of life? And it's this. They've already got that. But you know what else they found? That none of that matters. They found that every little bit, everything that you and I might think we want is not enough. They're like, this doesn't satisfy me. Why? 
Because without Jesus, there is no life. And without surrender to Jesus, what life there is, is meaningless. Here's what this means for you and me today. Because Jesus is creator and sustainer, then Jesus is first in our worship. Because Jesus is creator and sustainer, Jesus is first in our worship. Now I know this seems incredibly obvious, doesn't it? Anybody just blown away by what I said? Jesus is first in our worship? We've never heard that in church before. This seems very obvious, but it's astounding how often we get this wrong. Sure, we don't come in here today and worship multiple deities. But if we're brutally honest with ourselves, can we honestly say that we worship Jesus in every moment above everything else? I know for me, and I'm willing to bet for most of you, the answer is no. We get distracted in life. We get distracted by schedules, by emotions, by our own preferences. We get distracted by the things going on around us. Sometimes we even choose our own desires over what we know will be Christ-honoring because we don't like what Jesus calls us to do. In short, we struggle with this idea of worshiping Jesus above all else because we are idolaters. Every single one of us is an idolater. When God gives the, the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 20 and 23, we read this. This is in the beginning of the Ten Commandments. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. Commandment number one, do not have other gods besides me. I say this all the time. Uh, and this is not my wisdom. This was told to me many years ago. In fact, so long ago that I don't remember who said it to me. So I, I feel okay if I claim it as my own, but I'm not going to. Uh, if we could keep this one commandment, the other nine would not be needed. If we would keep this one commandment that we had no gods but our God, we wouldn't need the other commandments. But the problem is we break this commandment all the time. Why? Because we are idolaters. Great. That's wonderful. What do we do with that? How do we overcome the idolatry in our hearts, the idolatry in our lives? And there's a lot that we could talk about with that. But let me give you um, just one way. One way, one um, one instruction to help you and to help me this week as we overcome the idolatry in our lives, and it's this. If we're going to overcome idolatry, we have to set consistent time aside for focused worship of Jesus. We have to set aside consistent time of focused worship of Jesus. Why? Because only with consistent time of focused worship of Jesus are we able to truly remember everything he has done in the past. And only with consistent time of focused worship of Jesus can we see what he is going to do in the futures. Can we rest in his promises and in the nature of who he is? Right, so we need to set aside focus times. Okay, how do we do that? Right, that's the next logical question. Right, and the first is, you got a great start today. 
right? That's part of the reason we gather as a church family to worship is it's a time that we have set aside where we come together, where we are reminded of the goodness of who God is. We're reminded of what he does, not just in our hearts and our lives, but the hearts and lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ all around us, right? So this is a great start, but what else? Right? It's, it's, it's times of prayer, right? Do you have time set aside in your day to pray, to just reflect on who Jesus is, what he's done, what, what he is going to do in your life? Do you have quiet reflection? Right? Are there times... And, and, and listen, especially if you've got kids, this might be one of the hardest things in the world to do. But are there times in your life where you just sit in quiet? Just you and the Lord sitting? Listen, two minutes might be all you get in the day. I understand. I understand. <laughs> two minutes might be all you get. But it takes those quiet times. Like, okay, God, just calm me. Speak to me. Right? Maybe it's, it's having a, a relationship with another person that you can sit and have those meaningful conversations where you move beyond, hey, how's the weather? And how was your vacation? And what do you guys have going on next week? But you dive into the deep truths of Jesus Christ. Look, all of this helps us to be able to, to center our thoughts and refocus ourselves on who Jesus is and what he does and what that means in our lives which leads us to, to understanding the magnitude of his role as creator and sustainer so that we can worship him and we can continue to worship him. So Jesus is creator and sustainer. So he is first in our worship. Paul continues to show us next that Jesus is ruler and authority. In verse 18, he says, Jesus is ruler and authority. Real simple verse, 18, it says, he, again, Jesus, he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. And so not only is Jesus firstborn over creation, is he the power, the, the creator, and the sustainer, but he is the primary ruler and authority over it. It says he is the head of the body, the church. He's the head of the body, the church. The head, again, this is a, a metaphor that's used to show a position of authority. Jesus has authority, right? Where, you go where your head goes. I know we make jokes about our kids leaving their heads behind if they weren't attached to their bodies, but that never actually happens, Right? Your body goes where your head goes. The head has the authority. And it says he is the, the beginning, the firstborn, so he might have first place. Again, all of these point to Jesus' position as authority. Yes, he was firstborn over creation, but he's also firstborn from the dead. So this ruler, this authority over all creation is also firstborn, has the authority over those who are raised from the dead because of his resurrection. It reminds us of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus rose, because Jesus rose, we will be raised. Jesus is the ruler and the authority over all of creation, but he is the ruler and authority even over life and death. 
Jesus is ruler and authority. And because Jesus is ruler and authority, we get our second key response. Then Jesus is first in our church. Jesus is first in our church. Because he is ruler and authority, he's first in our church. Again, Paul says here, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. And we can, we can have a conversation here about what Paul means by church. Does he mean the universal church, all believers? Does he mean the local church? I think he means the universal church. But for us, as we look at that and go, okay, so how does this work then in our lives? We, we take this application to the local church. Right? Jesus is first in our church. Here's the hard truth for us in this, okay? That means that the church is not about you. And the church is not about me. In fact, the church isn't even necessarily about us. Jesus is first in the church. Jesus is first in our church. Now, there are implications as to, okay, then what does that mean for you and for me and for us as a whole? But first and foremost, Jesus is first in our church. That means that, that my job as a pastor or the role of our elders or the purpose of this entire body of believers is not to satisfy your preference or to satisfy my preferences or to be the church that some people think this church should be. We are here, you are here, I am here. We are here as an act of service to Jesus Christ. As a pastor, I get to have conversations with lots of other pastors. And I get to hear all the horror stories of churches. You've probably heard a few of them. Of, of church battles and church splits and the problems that happen. I hear a lot of them. You know why there are so many problems in churches? Right, because shouldn't this be a place where there are no problems? We should all just get along and love each other and it's great, right? Why are there problems with so many churches? It's because we like to make ourselves the center of the church. Well, the church isn't doing what I think they should do. They should be doing that. This person treated me in a way that I should, so I'm going to show them. Right, well, I, I really like this, but I don't like that. Whatever it is, the problem is that we put ourselves in the center. You know what James says in James chapter 4, verse 1? He says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war inside of you? He says the problem, the problem of your fights, of your struggles, of your battles with one another, right? And, and James is writing to the church here. He says your problems with one another is, is not, it's not theological. Your problems are because you have desires that you want fulfilled above everything else. And you've put yourself in the center. And, and the reality is our life and our faith will always feel hollow if our concept of the church is built around our ideas, our preferences, and our expectations. But our life of faith and our experience in the church will be entirely satisfying, fulfilling, and energizing when we put Jesus first, 
when it is all about Jesus Christ. Paul knows this. This is why he writes to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. And he says, what should you guys do as you live together? How do you live together in unity and harmony? He says, you submit to one another in fear of Christ. That in fear of Christ, some translations say, submit to one another in reverence to Christ. But the whole point is, are you putting Christ at the center? Or is this about you? When Christ is at the center, we, we can submit to one another, right? We can set aside our preferences and we can worship, we can celebrate, we can be a family. But that only happens when we submit to Jesus as we emulate him, knowing that he has sacrificed everything for us. And so he is the center, he is first in our church. Is Jesus central in our understanding of service in an approach to the church, both here at Erie Evangelical Free Church and to the church at large, all believers in all places at all times? Paul says, Jesus is creator and sustainer. He says, Jesus is ruler and authority. Finally, he closes this hymn And he shows us this truth that Jesus is redeemer. Jesus is redeemer. Verses 19 and 20 say, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is redeemer. God's pleasure, God's joy is to see his children saved through the faithfulness of Jesus. God fully dwelled in Jesus. We said before, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's the physical manifestation of God. That means that Jesus is not a mere representative of God in this this world. Jesus isn't a a prophet or a priest or a really good teacher who was inspired by God. He is God in human flesh who came to heal our broken relationship with the Father. I just said he came to, to reconcile. Through him, to reconcile everything. Reconciliation means a a restoration of relationship. And through Jesus, our relationship with our Father can be healed. But it only comes through the blood of Jesus. That only comes because we have failed to love God completely with all that we have and all that we are because we fall to the idolatry in our hearts and therefore don't deserve the presence of a good, holy, and perfect God. And yet, a good, holy, and perfect God loves us so much that he continues to pursue us. And after we had rejected him time and time again, he sent his son, Jesus, to live perfectly, die sacrificially, and rise victoriously so he could deliver us completely from sin and death to reconcile us as a broken, fallen people 
to heal our relationship with a good, holy, and perfect God. Through Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, the only perfect sacrifice, all things are reconciled through and only through his blood, which is shed on the cross. Only he is the perfect sacrifice. The author, uh, the author of Hebrews talks about this in, in Hebrews chapter 10. And in verse four of Hebrews 10, it says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All right, he's looking back to the Old Testament, to the sacrificial system of the Jews, where when they sinned, when they broke their covenant relationship with God, they took animals and they sacrificed them, using that blood to pay the penalty of their sins. And then every time they sinned, they had to go back and do this again and again and again and again, even though they took, quote unquote, perfect animals. The problem is those perfect animals were never truly perfect. And the author of Hebrews goes on in verse 11 to say, every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, this man is Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made a footstool. For by, off, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Animals, the blood of bulls and goats, can satisfy the price we owe momentarily. But Jesus makes us right with the Father forever because he is the perfect sacrifice. Only Jesus can redeem us from sin and death. Jesus is redeemer. And because Jesus is our redeemer, then Jesus is first in our lives. Jesus is first in our lives. I tried to come up with something catchier than lives because I felt like, you know, then you, you might remember it better. But there's nothing else that makes sense here. <laughs> Jesus is first in our lives in every single aspect of every single part of our lives. Every aspect of our lives must be a response to our unwarranted redemption in Jesus Christ, the unwarranted reconciliation that we receive. Well, how do I know if I'm living in response to Jesus, if I've put him first in my life? Again, let me give you four questions to ask yourself. Okay, if you're a note taker, there's four of them coming. So get ready. Four questions. First, how do I know if Jesus is first in my life? Okay, whose opinion will change your mind? On things that you are absolutely certain of, whose opinion will change your mind? If we read something in scripture that says something we don't like, are we like, that's not enough? No, no, no. That can't be right because here's what I think. But if somebody in our lives tells us something that like, we know this is what scripture says, but they said this and that sounds really good. Okay, that sounds better. I like that better, right? Whose opinion matters? Whose opinion changes our mind? Number two, what I hope to gain from what I'm doing. What I hope to gain from my work, from my service, from my actions. What is it I'm seeking? 
Jesus in Matthew 6.1 says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you'll have no reward with your Father in heaven. This doesn't mean if you do something that God wants you to do, nobody should ever see it. But what it means is, what is your goal? What are we trying to achieve? Right? Do we serve and give and love, not so that somebody else sees it and thinks a certain way about us or that we get what we, what we want out of it, but simply because God has called us to do what he's called us to do? Right? Here's another place where, as a pastor, I get blessed more than any of you because I see how this happens in this body. Right? And I could go down the list of people who give and serve in ways that you never will know from somebody like Julie Norman who cleans the church and makes sure that it's picked up and it smells nice and the bathrooms are clean, to Dave and Carol Franks who mow the lawn and make sure our yard looks nice, to our, our deaconesses, Lori Norman, Mary Hammer, Jen Franks, Christy Packer, Right? They do so much more than most of us realize from writing cards to, um, to setting up uh, meals to, uh, to preparing communion to making visits. Right? And again, the list could go on and on and on and on. But listen, that only happens when Jesus is at the center of our lives because if Jesus is not at the center and I do something really nice and nobody recognizes it, why would I ever do it again? So what do I hope to gain? Number three, how do I respond to those who hurt or reject me? Ooh, this is the one that hurts. How do I respond to those who hurt or reject me? Because again, Jesus in Matthew 6, verse 14 and 15 says, for if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your father will not forgive your offenses. Right, and what Jesus is saying here, again, is not, God's forgiveness is based on whether you will forgive or not. That's not it. But what Jesus is saying is, listen, if you understand the depth of my father's forgiveness of you, how could you ever hold that against someone else? See, there's lots of good reasons according to the world's standards of why we should not forgive people, why we should hold grudges, why we should make sure they pay the price that they deserve to pay in my eyes. The problem is, that's not what Jesus says. So when people hurt us and reject us, how do we respond? That tells us a lot about who is at the center of our lives. Last one. Am I joyful even if nothing works out the way I hoped or expected it would? When life looks nothing like the way you thought it would or you think it should, do we still have joy? Because we understand who Jesus is. Because we understand the magnitude of his love, his grace, and his mercy. Paul in, in Philippians chapter one talks about the fact that there are lots of people preaching the gospel out there while he is sitting in prison. Doesn't know if he's going to live or die. Doesn't know what's going to happen in his life. And he says this, Philippians 1, 17 through 19, some proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking that they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? 
Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I will rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice because I know that this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and the help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul says, there are people preaching Christ trying to get me in trouble so that I'll be put to death. I don't know about you, but if I'm in Paul's situation, I'm like, guys, knock it off. Stop. That's not helpful. And what's Paul's response? Pfft, who cares? Let him stir up trouble for me. That's all right. If I die, I die. If I get put to death, I get put to death. Why Christ is the center of his life. It doesn't matter how this turns out. He's joyful. Why is he joyful? Because Jesus is his redeemer. Listen, is Jesus at the center of all that we think, all that we do, and all that we say? Jesus is and must be the center of our worship, the center of our church, and the center of every other aspect of our lives. Without Jesus as the central focus, our religion is impotent and our lives are insignificant. And I know that sounds harsh to somebody who, who hasn't surrendered the authority of their life to Jesus. I understand that, but I won't apologize for the truth either. Because you see, at the end of the day, the only thing that matters is the life, death, resurrection, and eternal reign of Jesus Christ. Everything else, no matter how good, how pleasant, how kind or caring it may seem, is at best momentary. But in Jesus, there is eternal life. Not because of what we can do, but because of the power of who Jesus is and what Jesus has already done and accomplished. Church family, let us go out this week empowered, engaged, and encouraged by the love of God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ made known to us by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. May we live in every conceivable way with Jesus at the center of our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And as we do so, may we grow deeper in our knowledge of who he is and proclaim all the more clearly the grace, the mercy, and the forgiveness of our Savior to the world around us. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, we're so thankful for who you are. We're thankful for the life that you have given us. Not a life we have earned, not a life we deserve, but a life we have because you are exactly who you say you are. Because you have sent your son as the firstborn of all creation, the creator and the sustainer, the, the ruler, the authority to redeem us to sacrifice his life on behalf of our broken sinfulness. And there are no words that suffice to express our gratitude. And so we simply say, Father, we love you and we thank you and we praise you. In your great and awesome name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you'd like more information about Erie Evangelical Free Church or our ministries, 
please visit www.eriefree.com or join us in person at 1409 16th Avenue, Erie, Illinois.